What is better than gold and silver? There are many things. Friends, relationships, love. One of the things, children, spouses, God. <laughs> but one of the things the Proverbs tell us is in Proverbs 22.1, it says that a good name, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor better than silver or gold. A good name is greater than wealth. So what do you do then when your name is robbed from you? I don't mean identity theft, where somebody else pretends to be Pastor Brandon McCulloch. That wouldn't be good, by the way. But I mean the reputation of a person. It's funny because watching my kids grow up, there's a phase where they don't quite grasp the concept of their name. Oh, are you Batman today? No, I'm Addy. Are you hungry? I'm Addy. Are you grumpy? No, I'm Addy. And they think <laughs> that the name and the adjective of how they're feeling are somehow one in the same. And it makes you think, what's in a name? What is in a name? And Romeo and Juliet, Shakespeare and Romeo and Juliet asked that question. What's in a name? Because Juliet was mourning the the fact that she could not be with Romeo because of the family he comes from, the name that they come from, and that these families were at odds with each other. And so she asks, what's in a name? If you call a rose by another name, isn't it still sweet smelling? Yeah. So Shakespeare, in a sense, was casting doubt on the concept that a name really matters. And yet we use that phrase often to actually say the opposite. What's in a name? Everything is in a name. And a good name is to be chosen above great riches. So what do we do when we go through this? This is from A Tale of Three Kings, a very imaginative telling of the life of David. And it reads at this one part, David's on the run from King Saul. Is King Saul just like, oh, David's such a nice guy. I wish he'd return. No, King Saul is hunting David down. He wants everybody to know that David is a dog who deserves to die. He's angry at his son Jonathan for defending David. So you can imagine the slander and the propaganda that King Saul would use in order to make people disfavorable toward David. And so this book, A Tale of Three Kings, captures it like this. In times past, mothers had always told their children that if they did not behave, they would end up like the town drunk. You better be, better get good grades or you'll be like that drunk over there. Okay, mom. No longer. They had a better, more frightening story. Be good or you'll end up like the giant killer. In Jerusalem, when teachers taught students to be submissive to the king and to honor the Lord's anointed, David was the parable. See, this is what God does to rebellious men. The young listeners shuddered at the thought and somberly resolved never to have anything to do with rebellion. Can you imagine the slander that David endured the murder of his name because King Saul envied him. 
I don't know if you've had your reputation, if you've had your name murdered by another person's words. It's not fun. And it's death. And if a reputation matters, then what do we do when that reputation is destroyed by someone else falsely? Jesus, it says that when he was falsely accused by the by the priests and the religious leaders, it said that Jesus said not a word. Just like Isaiah 53 said that the Messiah would come and suffer and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. And I'm, I'm convinced that Jesus took the high road in not defending himself in not trying to prove and promote and protect his own name for himself. And it makes me wonder if we want to honorably, authentically bear the name of Christ in our lives, bear the name Christian, we need to ask seriously, what are we to do when people slander our reputation and our name. Well, what did David do? Psalm 17 is all about this experience. It doesn't give us a specific context, but it's clear from the psalm itself that David is going through people who have been saying wrong things about him. And so we're going to see him claiming that he's innocent before God, Please don't think that David here is trying to claim I am spiritually and morally perfect. His language is going to sound like that. But you have to think in context. David's saying, Lord, what these people are saying about me is a lie. And in that realm, in that context, I am perfect. It's a total and utter lie. They're wrong. So we're going to see David come before the Lord here. So let's read Psalm 17. The title says, A Prayer of David. And he says in verse 1, Hear a just cause, Adonai. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. And from your presence, let my vindication come. Vindication. It's that declaration that you are in the right Where does David want the vindication to come from? God, show everyone my resume. Show them my past. Show them my abilities. God, let's come up with a plot or a plan. Or let's show them my political position. Lord, from your presence, let my declaration that I am right come. Let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes behold the right. That's me. I'm right. Let their eyes behold me. Verse three. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. Visited me by night. Possibly speaks of the way you don't want visitors at night. They come at an inconvenient time. I remember being awakened on a sleepy Saturday morning. I was in high school. And you know how teenagers do Saturday morning. Um, being awakened, intruded into my room by some friends and my baseball coach who said, we have tickets to the Dodger game, you're getting up now. Uh, 
Sometimes you, that was a good reason, but sometimes there's worse reasons to get up and be intruded on in the night. Yet here David is saying, Lord, look, I have been an open book. I've allowed you to come and visit me in the most inopportune moments because there's nothing to hide. I'm not hiding anything. I'm innocent in what these people are saying about me. So you visit me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. In other words, I have not chosen the path of humanity and been violent in response to what people are saying about me. I, because of the words, the word of your lips, I have avoided those ways of violence. My steps, in verse 5, held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Now, I should note that this could be translated, the New King James is reading, more of a prayer. Um, Hold my steps fast, that my feet may not slip. Um, But it seems more like David's building a case here that he hasn't slipped. In other words, he hasn't chosen the path of the violent men, so he's held fast to God's path, and his, his feet have not slipped off of God's path by slipping into retaliation and violence. And friends, sometimes we want to get back at people when they have unjustly hurt us. But according to David, that's the paths of humanity. It's not God's path. As soon as we violently retaliate, we have slipped from God's path. And David here is saying, I haven't done that. I have not reached my hand out against them. Um, verse 6. So now he prays, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love. Or that could also read, distinguish me, set me apart by your steadfast love. So on one hand, it could be reading, Lord, show me your great works, your steadfast love. On the other hand, it could be saying, Lord, do something in my life that will set me apart and and help people see that I am yours. Come and intervene, act in my life. So people look and say, oh, he is God's. We shouldn't be talking this way about him. I have had this happen in my life where I have been slandered, at least that I know of. Who knows how much you don't know, right? But I do know of a time when I was specifically and directly slandered. And man, I your thoughts go through this psalm. And it's like, check, 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 check. Um, and obviously, I didn't want to like grab a gun or anything. It wasn't like that kind of violent. But you want to, like, in a way, you just want to, like, vent some sort of a thing, whether it's violent words or it's putting them down or it's, you, you, you go through this checklist. Um, and what I remember happening was that God did, verse 7, he, and if you look in the, in the ESV, at least, it gives you a footnote that says that this could read, um, distinguish me by your steadfast love. It's like, let your wonderful, steadfast love come and distinguish me. And I remember in praying and praying and praying, God, how do we go forward with this? Do we defend ourselves? What do we say? What do we do? All of a sudden, God actually 
stepped in and brought something that happened in our lives that was an unmistakable declaration of God saying, I don't see you in the wrong. I think you have been wronged. And so then God opened the door for this event to happen. And it spoke very clearly to me. It didn't matter what was the event was. It didn't matter anything that came out of that. What it said to me is the door opening said God was like saying, Brandon, you're okay. I am vindicating you. I'm declaring you in the right. So go walk through. And we did. And it's almost like that was, that was like just saying, don't look back. God will vindicate us and he will deal with people who slander us in his way. We do not have to obsess ourselves over how to make ourselves right. As David said in verse two, from your presence may my vindication come. Verse eight, keep me, keep me as the apple of your eye. Such a, it's such a strange phrase, isn't it? The apple of your eye. Uh, the Hebrew interpreters believe that the apple refers to the pupil of your eye. Keep me as the pupil of your eye. And, and the New Living Translation, um, kind of one of those like looser translations, but it really, I think, captures maybe what the Hebrew means here. Keep me as the pupil of your eye. Well, how do you keep the pupil of your eye? Very carefully. The wind starts to blow or some dust. You shut those eyelids as fast as you can. It's funny when you watch, because I've been watching playoff baseball right now, it's funny when you watch the batter swing on the replays. If you look at the catcher's eyes, they blink every single time. How many bats have been swung next to a catcher in his career? Millions, right? And yet every single time they blink when the bat comes by. It's because it's instinctual for us to protect our eyes. So the New Living Translation goes ahead and just says, protect me like I protect my eyes or something to that effect. I thought that's interesting that that's what God's, that's what David's praying here. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Protect me the way you protect your own eyes. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. And so here's the image of a bird, right? Gathering its babies underneath it and protecting them while the dogs and the coyotes are snarling around it and the bird just protecting with the wings. Now there may also be a double image here. In that, in the Ark of the Covenant, on the Ark of the Covenant, the very, what Israel considered God's throne on earth, right there in the Holy of Holies in the temple, that there were wings of the cherubim spread over the Ark of the Covenant. And David could be praying, look, shelter me, hide me in the shadow of your wings, right there in the heart of your presence, let me be hidden right there on your throne. So it could be a very intimate prayer for being kept in his presence. Uh, verse 9, he continues, From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. So that's who he's being protected from. And verse 10, they close their hearts to pity. And oh, what a pity that this changed from the way the new King James and the King James read that uses the word fat. And literally, the Hebrew is actually saying they are imprisoned in their fat. They are imprisoned in their fat. 
Isn't that interesting? That these slanderers are not roaming for, like with freedom of speech like people might think they are. Oh, we can say whatever we want and get away with it. And we're just going to put down all the losers like David who sleep in the ditch and run from the king. Um, they're not running around in largeness of life. Well, maybe in a different sense of largeness of life. But they aren't free. They're, it says, imprisoned in their fat. And the fat is possibly a poke at their prosperity. But more than that is that the idea of being imprisoned in your fat is that the fat is insulation. It has protected them from things like compassion, from pity, from empathy, from feeling for other people. And here's the thing. When we surround ourselves with comfort and we surround ourselves with earthly pleasure, we eventually become insulated. We become imprisoned in that comfort. And we no longer want to take the extra step because it's too much work to be in someone else's shoes. And so it becomes that much easier for us to slander or to just talk about people. Isn't that interesting, isn't it? How the most critical people in the world are the people who sit in their chair and look at the world and talk about it. You call that Monday morning quarterbacking, right? Or armchair quarterbacking. Just the old... I, the image of the old beer drinking man, and if, if anybody's an armchair quarterback, I'm not saying you drink beer and you're fat, but the, 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 the cartoon image, right, is of the man who, woman, get me a sandwich with a beer on his belly, and he's like, that crazy idiot cannot block properly, and how did he lose the football there? And they're just ranting, and, and, and half the time you're going, it's interesting what we do in America, we have the most fit people in the world performing for the most unfit people in the world. And yet this, but this is what can happen to us spiritually is that when we become insulated in comfort, we become like that armchair quarterback. And all we do is say, oh, the worship team doesn't do it right. Or if I was the pastor of this church or, or if I had my choice with the mask thing or and on and on and on. We need to be careful that we don't become the armchair quarterback because that can easily, easily become slander in just a few more words. Let us not be swallowed or imprisoned or, or trapped in our fat, so to speak. Uh, by the way, God in Leviticus told the people of Israel, when you bring your offerings, you're to reserve the fat for me. And that's a good lesson in life, lest we become absorbed in our own comforts. There's nothing wrong with comfort, but to insulate ourselves with it. That's another problem. So let's give it to God. Lest we become like these slanderers in verse 10. So as the ESV reads, they close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground he, we're talking about the man closed in his fat, right? The one who's closed his heart to pity, the slanderer. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. So here we see David's in it, right? He's going through it. And now in verse 13, Arise, Adonai, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, Adonai. From men of the world whose portion is in this life. 
How is David comforting himself? By recognizing that some people live for what's here in this life, right now in this world. But David recognizes that he has something beyond this. And he doesn't have to be concerned with what people, men of this world, think of him. Their opinion means nothing in the scheme of eternity. Their words about him, their slander cutting him down, means nothing in the eyes of God. They're just men of this world, and their portion is only in this little flash of 60, 70, 80 years called life. That's it. That's all they get. Jesus taught us to be careful Lest people be, people see you for your spiritualness, he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Be careful, lest you receive your reward. Oh, the way that you worship God inspires me. Like, oh, I thank you so much. And that's the reason, like, you're just so passionate about worship is so people see you and like, oh, I inspire people. And God's like, I hope you enjoy your reward because that's it. There's nothing when you get to heaven. You took it already. Um, David, though, see, he consoles himself by recognizing that these are men of the world whose portion is in this life. Men of the world. Um, <laughs> uh, Spurgeon called them here in his commentary, he called them earthworms. Men of this world are earthworms. I love that because that really gives us the vision. Compared to God in eternity... Men of the world are earthworms. It's just, you don't even think, oh, did I step on one? My bad. The other, um, C.S. Lewis often called men of the world as worldlings, which I love because it's sort of the play on earthlings. Uh, a superior alien comes down, greetings, earthlings, and it's like, who are these little ro- like creatures? Um, Lewis sees them as worldlings. Just, yep, they're just part of this passing scene because there are superior creatures that God is building into us. He's building sons and daughters of the king. And these are creatures who are not just super moral humans, but as Lewis says, they're like horse being given wings that are completely different creatures altogether. Not just stronger, faster human horses, faster, stronger, no, flying creatures, totally different. David recognizes these are just men of the world whose portion is in this life. So now David prays, or he says, you fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. Now, on one hand, he's saying, okay, yep, they have the good life, because their portions in this life, they've aimed everything in this life, so yep, they've got good things. Um, the womb, uh, most translations actually say their bellies, he's filled their bellies with treasure, Um in other words, they're just like, yeah, sometimes, you know what? The slanderer, the wicked one, the one who is not right in God's eyes sometimes has all the goods right now. But we must be patient because they won't forever. And I think that's part of what's being said here. On the one hand, yes, you fill their womb with treasure. But on the other hand, and they're satisfied with children. But on the other hand, the last line says they leave their abundance to infants. So in other words, everything that they've garnished for themselves, you can't take it with you. It's left behind. And of course, that should make you think of the old joke when the man packs a suitcase full of golden bricks and gets up into heaven and St. Peter at the gate says, why did you bring concrete? You can't bring even gold with you. It doesn't matter in God's eyes. And so those worldlings, those 
those earthworms who have invested everything in this life are just leaving it to someone else. And verse 15, the contrast. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is an amazing verse. I will behold your face was one of the Christian's hope is that we, like First John says, we will see him as he is. But when we see him as he is, we will be made like him, it says. Um, seeing him in his righteousness, I'll behold your face in righteousness when I awake. So is this in the morning? Or is this that old euphemism for death and life afterward? Is David saying, when I awake in eternity, I shall be satisfied with your likeness? We don't know. But it could easily mean that, because that's true. And it's almost as if David says, "I look, look. David just ends this on a high note, right? It's almost like he forgets the slander at this point, because his eyes have gone to eternity. He's focusing on the people who are living for the present. And he says, but as for me, I'm focusing on what I will have forever. And I will be filled. I will be satisfied. You can fill my womb or you can fill my my bank account or you can fill my house or you can fill my life with treasures. You can give me all that abundance, but I won't be satisfied. None of that will fill me until I awake with your likeness. Beautiful. That's what, isn't this the heart of the Psalms that we've been seeing? It's almost like this one verse just capturing what the Psalms are all about. The world speaks in slander and put down and death to reputations of people we don't like. But in the Bible and on God's path, it speaks the language of prayer and praise. And the languages of prayer and praise are pathways to getting us to waking up, seeing God's face and waking up in his likeness. And it also asks the question, is this saying we're going to wake up and see God's likeness, see him as he is? Or are we going to wake up with his own likeness within us? If it's talking about death, then yes. I mean, yes to both. We will wake up like him. And that is the ultimate aim of all of God's people is that not that we would have a therapy, a therapy session from God. Help me just make it through this life. Or a moral session from God. Let me just be a decent chap. Or I just believe in some sort of a deity. No, those are not the things that the Christian, the true Christian is hungering for. Those things might come on the side. It's like the appetizer, right? It's not the main course. The main course, the main course, of course, is that we wake up and we are just as he is. We are made like him, his sons and his daughters, forever fulfilled because we finally reached what we've been saved for. Interesting, isn't it? How it goes from slander and, ah, oh, Lord, defend me to change me. Let me be like you. Isn't that interesting? And here's what I've learned in life. I've learned that I don't know how to pray until someone has slandered me. 
And I look back. And it wasn't until, you know, you would always, you always have a prayer life. Every Christian has a prayer life. It may come and go in desperate moments. The SOS to God, save our ship because I can't do it. But you don't actually learn to pray beyond words until words have hurt you. And that's when prayer becomes not just talking to God, which is fine and great, talking to God is something we all do. But then prayer becomes being with God. And it's something that happens with or without words. And it's something that you just need. You're like David praying, please hide me in the shadow of your wings. Let me be the apple of your eye. And isn't it interesting too, that this title of this psalm wasn't just a psalm of David, like most of them say. It's a prayer of David. Isn't that interesting? Suddenly we actually have this distinguished as a prayer. Now all the psalms are prayers, but this one is just, let's just make this obvious. Of all the prayers, here's a prayer. Because it's when words come against us that we learn to pray deeply. We learn to pray and hunger for the safety and the shelter of God's presence because when it's my name that dies, I learn that there's a greater name to take up. When I'm slandered, I want to raise my voice. I want to prove myself, to defend myself, to say, no, actually, you're the idiot, and here's why. I want to use some sort of that kind of violence. Just get them back. But when we're slandered and we take the path of Christ and we open not our mouth and we let what Christ was being accused of insane things. And he said nothing. He said nothing. In all the gospels, it says he just, he didn't say a word and they put him on the cross. That's what slander feels like. And you want to just come down or call down the 10,000 legions of angels and say, <laughs> you guys should have known who my dad is and you shouldn't have messed with me. We want to. But if we do that, we will never learn the value of seeing the name Pastor Brandon McCulloch die. Because what God really wants is to stamp us with his name. He wants his name on us. He's not trying to raise up little genies and little Michaels and little Carmens and say, look how wonderful they are. He's trying to raise his name up in and through us. Christian, little Christ. We are those who bear the name of Christ. And Philippians chapter two says, look, because Christ came and he was crucified on the cross, it says, therefore God has given to him the name above every name so that at his name, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Even the slanderers shall confess that he is Lord. And then in, in, in Revelation chapter 3, to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus is writing through John. In Revelation 3, through John, he says this to the church. And that's us, because the, these letters are still relevant, because we are children of God like Philadelphia is. And it, it, he says, Revelation 3, verse 12 
The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. So you will stand and you will have an eternal place in my kingdom. That's, that's a good promise. Then he says, never shall he go out of it. You're never going to leave my presence. If you conquer, if you, if you keep going, if you keep hanging in there with me, you will have an eternal permanent place in my presence. Then he says this, and I will write on him the name of my God. And remember, this is Jesus speaking to this church. I will write on this Christian the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. So you're being stamped with belongs to God, belongs to the the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God. He's a kingdom citizen. We know where he belongs. And he says, um, I will put on him my own new name. Three names. Brandon. What a glorious name. Who knows what kind of reputation that carries. But God says, forget that. Even if it's a great reputation, I'm going to kill it. Because I have a better name for you. I want the name of God on you. I want the name of your eternal destination on you. And I want Christ's new name, which no one knows. Or it doesn't tell us at least. It says my own new name. I want that name on you too. God's name, our, our destination's name, and Christ's name. I'm going to put those names on you. But, 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 Brandon, we have to get you unattached to your name. And so that means sometimes you're going to experience people treating your name like rubbish and you having to discipline yourself to say, or not to say, hey, that's my name. You're wrong and I'm right. I'm better than that. Everyone listen to what crooked liars they are. God's saying, you can do that. It's not like he's going to smite us with lightning or cast us away from his presence forever if we do that. You can do that. But what we're missing, what we're missing is the opportunity to have a new name given to us. I would far rather carry a reputation of Christ's name, of my eternal destination stamped on me, I would much rather become, like David said, I want to awake with your likeness. That's what we're going for. And so that's why sometimes God will allow people to say the things they say and to slander. Yes, he will hold them to that one day. But in the meantime, he says, Brandon, learn your real name. Learn your real name and grow into it. Easier said than done, I understand. God is more interested in our transformation than he is in our reputation. He's not actually asking us to go around and um, bear good names with excellent reputations. He said bear much fruit. God wants transformation. He wants growth. The only way we can wake up to this is if we die to the little reputation that I've worked hard to build, I've worked hard to uphold. Now, let's let's be very clear. We are not saying your reputation doesn't matter. Of course it matters. And we don't want to throw our reputation away. But nor do we want to stoop down to my earthly reputation by fighting back with slanderers. We don't fight fire with fire in this game. 
James actually calls the tongue a fire from hell. We don't, we don't fight back in that way. We take the path of Christ and say, you can say what you want, but in three days, I'm coming out of that tomb and everyone's going to say, ugh, we were wrong. And in three days or so, 30 years, might feel like three lifetimes, you too will come out of that tomb and you will awake satisfied with God's likeness. Friends, this vindication, that fancy word for God declaring us right in the midst of everyone who thinks we're wrong, that great glorious moment of victory comes, as verse 2 said, from your presence, let my vindication come. There is nothing like prayer in the presence of God when we need and crave and desire this vindication. And, and here's, here's a blanket application for all of us. We feel Christianity and the church becoming more and more slandered in this increasingly secular society. And we want to stand up and ask for vindication. We want to prove, no, 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 we are the right way. The secular world's the wrong way. We want to. But God's not asking for us to use our words in the way that the world's using their words. That's the wrong approach. That's the wrong approach. God would rather us demonstrate transformation than fighting for our reputation. So I understand the desire for vindication, but the world will only be changed when God's people look for their needs from his presence. Not from these wonderfully massive strategies we have to convert more people, pack out our churches with more people. Look, those are good things, but that's not vindication. And if we think that we're going to make ourselves relevant by these plots and plans, we're wrong. What changes the world are people who sit in the presence of God, who hide under the shelter of his wings and allow him to transform us because we have nowhere else to go. We have no position, no power, no plan, no master strategy. We just have Christ. Just. We've become so enamored. We've become so enamored with more than Christ. And I, I love what this psalm does in challenging us to come back to what really matters. What, what, do we want favor from the men of this world whose portion is this life? When we've got the name of our God, the name of our eternal city, the name of Christ being put on us? Nah, surely we can do better. So, how do we stand when we're slandered? How do we stand? Do we stand for ourselves? That's not actually the biblical path. The biblical path is, yes, stand. Don't crumble under slander. Stand. Well, how do we stand then? How do we stand when slandered? I'm slandered, but I'm still standing. This psalm is how we do it. And to recap what it goes through, David gives us four ways that he found the strength to stand when slandered. And it's the, it goes like this. First, he asks God, hear me, hear me. Verse 1 and 2, 
Hear a just cause, Adonai. Hear me. Attend to my cry. Hear me. Give ear to my prayer. Hear me. You hear him? Three times he asks God, hear me. And when I am wronged, sometimes what we need most is to be heard. We need to be heard. I am so frustrated or I'm so hurt or I'm so disappointed. And you, and, and some, when somebody just simply can hear where you're coming from and say, that is rough. It takes a whole burden off. And guess what, friends? We have God who will hear us. And so, yep, sometimes you're like, oh, Lord, I hate them right now. But when has God ever recoiled at our thoughts? Ugh. He sees us all the time. He's seen the worst. He's seen the worst. Better that you admit to it. <laughs> but God, hear me. And when he hears us, when we come to him in prayer, we understand he does hear us. He hears us. And so now I feel, okay, I can stand through this because I am heard. I know that I'm not being ignored. That they are not the last word. Someone else is willing to hear my side of this. So David, David can stand through slander because God hears him. Second, he can stand through slander because God sees him. God sees him. Now that is really important too. As you see in verse 3, he sees him inside and out. Okay, this is a little spooky. I mean, but, but this is how we, this is where, this is where God is not into, oh, I'll defend your reputation. No, he's saying, I forget that. I'm going to give you transformation. Because when I'm slandered and I ask God to see me, guess what? Oh, he does. And he says, while I'm at it. And I've noticed that in me, that through slander, I tend to become very introspective. Wait a minute, Lord. Are they right? Do they have a point? Initially, I'm upset because how dare you say that about me? But then I'm like, God, search me. Look at me. Huh. And then somewhere along the road, he'll say, no, they're wrong. Or yeah, you can change that, but they're still wrong to say that. God, see me. This This is a dangerous invitation that will affirm you're okay with God, but it might also have God turn around and say, but while we're at it, let's make sure they're is more of me in your life. So the verses say, you have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You see me at my worst. <laughs> you have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress with regard to the words of man. Um, by the words of your lips, I've avoided the ways of violence. Yeah, so there he's saying, he's just reiterating to us, look, God has seen me. I've let you visit me. Look at me. You will find nothing. God's like, you're right. They're wrong. They're cruel. They're mean. You're in the right, David. You're in the right, Brandon. But, but, while we're at it, just, can you, yeah, good. I, I, I realize you see that now. You can fix that. And it happens. It's true. We begin to look. God looks with us and, wow, I'm changing through this. I'm becoming more like him. So David can stand through slander because God hears him. God sees him. Third, God holds him. He's not going to fall over. God's holding him up. That's where we see the the great verses. Like he's calling upon God, answer me because you can hear me. Um, That's where verse seven. Look, wondrously show your steadfast love or distinguish me. Set me apart by your steadfast love. And God enacts something. He does something in our lives and that will sustain us. That's going to hold us up. 
Um, also, that's where in verse 8 he says, keep me, keep me as the apple of your eye. Keep me in the shadow of your wings. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. There it is. God holds us. That's how we can stand in slander. So he hears us. He sees us. He holds us. And then verses 13 through 15, he fills us. There is no better time to be filled by God than when you're completely emptied of what you thought you were full of. Hot air. Full of yourself. Full of your accomplishments. And then someone says that one little thing and it all comes down. And God says, can I fill you now? Do you want this life to be your only portion, you earthworm? Or do you want to awake and be satisfied with my likeness? Satisfied. That goes right back to verse Psalm 16. Obviously, these follow each other pretty nicely. The whole, remember, belching the blessings of God because he has so satiated us at his table. Yeah, God will fill us. That's how we can stand in slander. Because he hears us, he sees us, he holds us, and he fills us. So brothers and sisters, I think we can model Christ when he was slandered. And we can see how Christ was able to stand in slander. Let us be willing to, let us be worthy of bearing his name by doing what he did. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We can also say they know not what they say. Lord, as we now turn to your provision for us.